everybody, this is Gina Human, founder and CEO of Trauma Drama University, a nonprofit that provides education, support, and resources to parents dealing with severe trauma behaviors in their children. Welcome to the Erase the Chaos podcast, where we talk about ways to help heal trauma and find peace in your home. Welcome, everybody, to the Erase the Chaos podcast. This is Professor Gina, and I'm here today with Chrissy Shard. And I love your name because it reminds me of Chardonnay. And who doesn't love wine, right? And she is a parenting coach. She's a parent herself, and her background's in public health. So this kind of ties into what she's always studied and always uh, fought for. So welcome to the show, Chrissy. Thank you so much, Gina. I'm just delighted to be here. Oh, wonderful. So I know we have a juicy, juicy question for you today. And I'm hoping this might be our whole discussion. We'll have to see how this goes. But we typically here at Trauma Drama University deal with kids that have severe, severe trauma behaviors. I uh, am a big fan of trying whatever the parenting books work. And if it doesn't work, we got to find something else. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different outcome, right? <laughs> That's right. Also, I just shared this quote by Viktor Frankl in my last video, which was, um, if we cannot change our situation we must change ourselves. So for those of us parenting these kids where we're trying these things over and over again, nothing's working, tell us, what is this all about? And how do our own early experiences shape the way that we parent? Yeah, I I love that quote so much that if we can't change our situation or circumstances, what's left to change then is ourselves. And I think about that so much because as parents, we have so much that we are tasked with and so much responsibility and so much on our plates. And oftentimes I think it can feel like, okay, now I also have to be doing this other work of figuring out my own stuff too. Like it's like, it's one more thing. And I really honor that feeling. And I also know that it's such life-changing work that it can end up actually saving us so much time and energy and heartbreak and despair on the other side of it that I like to look at it as sort of this investment that we're making that can make these other things and our parenting easier in some ways. So I'm thinking about that same point around how much time we spend learning about our kiddos, trying to figure out what might work, understanding the research behind different um, potential diagnoses or challenging behaviors that, that we find them engaging in, and that truth that our early experiences shape the rest, really, of our lives is so um, poignant and I think about this opportunity that we have to do some of that work of trying to understand our upbringing with the intention of using that framing to shift the way we're doing things moving forward. I'm thinking about, you know, this idea of our subconscious mind, right? And what's true is that on average, upwards of like 80% of our actions, our behaviors are really driven by our subconscious mind, meaning we aren't even aware that we're doing the things we're doing much of the time. Mm -hmm. And that is even more so the case when we're tired, when we're overwhelmed, when we're stressed. And I mean, what parent isn't tired, stressed, overwhelmed, worried? 
And so what becomes tricky is we find ourselves in these sort of autopilot default mode, just just doing what we think, you know, not even bringing the awareness to the moment. And what's also true is we do have the ability to override that subconscious, but we it's a finite ability, right? Mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, an example is, you know, maybe there's a day where we've planned some activities with our kids. We're going to be home all day. We have such high hopes at the beginning of the day that we're going to just have a great day. And then inevitably something happens. We're trying to hold it together. We hold it together and hold it together until we just don't anymore. And that's when we lose it. All right. Let me give you a situation. Yeah. Perfect. Let's say you plan the perfect day and well, here's what my kid would do. Um, if I decided to pick him up at preschool and surprise him with, we're going to go meet your friend in the park and go for ice cream. I got, no, and I got huge tantrum because as it turns out, my kid needs structure and routine. And every day after preschool, we go home and he watches SpongeBob. So he needed that consistency, (laughs) you know, it didn't necessarily fit in my schedule. So how do you combat things like that? Great. Yes. So I'm thinking about that example of you see the behavior right in your kiddos and that willingness, just like you talked about to actually see underneath the behavior for your kiddo, which was, ah, they actually really thrive on structure. That's helpful for me to know. But there's the piece about for myself noticing what was my reaction the disappointment or the frustration or the, oh, of course, the, you know, I keep trying to do these nice things, but then it, right. These are some of those, like the stories that we find ourselves with. Mm-hmm. And just like we are willing to see under our kiddos behaviors to try to understand what's going on, that invitation is the same for ourselves. So when we notice ourselves with a big reaction about something or intense frustration, we also can get in the habit of asking ourselves, okay, what's underneath that? What's the unmet need, right? I think about all behavior, right? And we know this with our kiddos is the um, result of an unmet need. Mm -hmm. And that's the same for us. And so part of our opportunity is to get better at identifying how are we feeling And what's the need that I had underneath, right? And maybe it was a need for um, variety. And that really came into conflict with my child's need for stability and structure. Mm -hmm. And better understanding that about ourselves can help us, one, make sense of what's happening and then make some different conscious choices, right? It's like this idea of making the invisible visible, right? And and making sense of our own reactions and patterns and whatnot, again, because so much of it is so subconscious and really just out of our awareness on a a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And it's very frustrating to me that children do not come with a manual, you know, like your car comes with its owner's manual. So, and you go to the store, you think, okay, I'll buy this parenting book. That should be the manual for for my kid. And you find out that your kid doesn't fit the manual. So (laughs) how do we take care of that? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of the work, there are so many parenting styles, right? There's conscious, gentle. I mean, the list is long. And what I often think about is that can feel really hard on parents, especially when you are sort of looking outward. Mm -hmm. Part of the work that I love doing with parents is clarifying what are your own values? 
What are your family's values? And then from there, how do you want to parent? How do you want to discipline? How do you want to set boundaries? How do you want to connect with your children? All from this set of articulated values, because you sort of have this guidepost then versus that outward trying to figure out what this type says I should do or what this approach thinks is best. Is that sort of turning inward and clarifying for yourself and parenting from those values? Mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting. I think it's Dr. Ross Green that says a child will do well if he can. And that Mm. means that if they're not doing well, if they're not complying with what you're doing, there is something off. There's something they're either missing a skill or they're developmentally delayed or something. And we got to figure out what's under all that behavior before we react. Totally. Right. It's that idea that We can't ask our kids to be responsible for continuously doing a behavior that they keep showing us they don't have the capacity to do, right? right? That's those moments where we get to take that. I think about it as like self-responsibility. And one way to look at it is this is so exhausting and I have so much that I'm trying to do. And that's fair and that's true and that's real. And the other way to look at that is it's helpful to know that I actually do have some control over it, right? Like I have some say in this and I I have agency in this. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the other piece that I think about is it can be really hard, especially with parenting stuff, when you read the things and you actually, maybe you've even found like, ah, this is the approach I want to take. I've done some research, right? I've learned about it. Maybe it's conscious parenting, right? Let's just say. And then you try to actually implement these things. And inevitably what happens is, again, you can do it for a while, but it can be really tricky to sustain that over time because we have these habits and patterns and wiring from so early on that actually what can happen is you can actually feel worse for a little while, right? Because now you know, and you're trying, but you're not able to yet embody it and have it be this habituated thing. So there's this in-between space that I think is also really, can be really hard on parents. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. And the you know, the, I think about the way we get from learning about it, right? It's, it's like this intellectually knowing versus the embodied practice of it. There's another quote that I love that says something like, knowledge is only a rumor until it's in the muscles. Oh. This idea that you can learn these things, right? Until you have this embodied practice of it and you've done your own rewiring, you know, you, you, you can't sort of find that sustainable way of doing it. And what's really clear from all of the research is anything that's been wired in us can be rewired. Yes. Anything. And I think that's a really important message to continue to share is that it's not right. We're not lost in this, that there there's always an opportunity to rewire. Okay. In your research, tell me what percentage of parents are perfect? (laughs) I can tell you with 100% certainty that 0% of parents. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So if your child is not behaving, don't beat yourself up. It's you're not a perfect parent. Your parents weren't perfect parents. It's okay. (laughs) Yes. And you know what I love this? I'm so glad that you said this because first of all, we get into whole like what is even perfect, but let's say that perfect was always emotionally attuned to your child, right? Right. Actually, that's not the most helpful thing because 
when we are not emotionally attuned, when we make a mistake in our parenting, when we have a rupture in the relationship, the most helpful thing that children can experience is what does it feel like to be apologized to? What does it feel like to have my parent acknowledge that they have done something that wasn't in alignment with their values and tell me, I'm sorry? That, and even if that's even in the research, is that the repair actually builds a stronger connection than parents who are more often emotionally attuned, right? And you know what? The, the other piece of this is that creates the expectation that in future relationships, I can expect that my partner may hurt me, but that they will take accountability and responsibility for that. And they will come back and apologize. And I am worthy of being apologized to. There's so much good that can come from that. So I love that you brought that up because apology and repair is, I truly think of it as like one of the most important gifts that we can give to our children. I 100% agree with you. And I would take that one step further, even and say, that's also a gift we can give to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that back to that message of like, it's self work also. Part of that work is learning how to uh, do some self apology, right? And to acknowledge, right, that of course we're going to mess up in our parenting and that we're not perfect and that that's okay. And we get to learn from that and grow from that Mm -hmm. um, is such an important piece of it, too. And I think, you know, even telling your kids right out front, I'm not perfect and you won't be perfect either. And I don't expect you to be perfect. I think that's part of the problem is when you expect your child to have straight A's and to win all the trophies and all of that stuff, you know, you're putting these expectations on them that makes them think they have to be perfect. And then if you never screw up in front of them or never apologize, then they think that, you know, you must be the gold standard. So, (laughs) Uh uh yeah. And I think about that notion of even when it's not this explicit expectation, like you need to get straight A's, you need to whatever it is. Sometimes the way that we provide praise can communicate that same message Mm -hmm. that you are valuable and worthy because of these achievements and accomplishments. And I think about that message. I was just talking about this. You know, there's a message out of like, I want my kids to know there's nothing they could do that would make me love them any less. The flip side of that message is also so important that there's nothing they could do that would make me love them anymore. Mm-hmm. No amount of achievement, no amount of accomplishing, nothing that they could do would make me love them more so that they aren't feeling this like need to always be striving and achieving and performing. And you know what I mean? I think there's such an important message in that as well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the messages are subconscious too, because I know that my parents were very happy when I brought home a straight A report card. And so- mm-hmm. They never gave me the expectations that I should always get straight A's, but I knew that when I had straight A's, they were happy. And so I just wanted to, I was a people pleaser. I was like, I just want them to be happy. And therefore now I've got all this anxiety over achievements and accomplishments and all that stuff that I'm trying to break within myself. So yeah. Yeah. And what's true is there are parts of mainstream parenting that do sort of read codependency, this like outwardly, right. Um, Orienting ourselves toward that people pleasing piece of it. Right. And that starts at those very early ages when exactly like you said, Gina, you start to pick up on 
oh, my parent cares a whole lot about this, or my sibling is getting a lot of praise because of the thing that they did. Mm -hmm. We start to see that. And the parenting approaches that are rooted in like trying to let me think of how to describe this, that it's all about the parent and that you need to be quiet. You need to calm down. You need like that. Also, all of these subtle ways that we communicate to our kids that what what matters is what I think and want and need this outside person versus what matters is how you're feeling, what you need, what you're experiencing. That's how we get that outward orientation instead of that inner sort of self-trust and um, self-worthiness, like really. Yeah, this is great. Um, have you read the book, What Happened to You by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry? No, that's that that's oh the God. newer one, right? Put this on your list and okay. you can do it on okay. Audible. And then it's like Oprah sitting in the car with you having a conversation. Mm. <laughs> um, if it's her reading it, then I'm all over that. Yeah, it's, it's her interviewing Dr. Perry. They kind of go back and forth. And she uses examples from people who were on her show to demonstrate some of the concepts that he's talking about. But I think everyone on the planet needs to read this book because I read it and all of a sudden I was like, oh, so that's why I do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, so that's why I do that. Like it explains so much of my own personality. And now that mm -hmm. I'm aware of it, I can make the changes that I need to make, but not being yeah. aware of it, you can't do anything about it. Right. Oh yeah. I will definitely put that on my list. Yeah, it's so true. And it's back to that sort of all around attachment theory, right? Is that sense of connection and attachment. That's what sets us up to really understand the world, right? To understand whether intimacy and connection is safe or not. That's what results in us understanding whether our emotions are okay to feel and we can trust our bodies or they're dangerous and we need to numb and tap out. That's where we understand do we make sense, right? Does our inner world make sense? Are we worthy of being known and seen? All of that really comes from those earliest experiences with our own caregivers. Right. And so with the kids at Trauma Drama University, a lot of them were adopted or foster kids or maybe escaped uh, domestic violence in the home or had nasty divorce with lots of screaming and yelling in the house. All of those things can make such an imprint on us and they can all actually rewire the brain. So how do we overcome that if the brain has already been set up for fight or flight at all times? Yes, it's that is right. That's like the most important question that I think we can we can be asking. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think about is this notion of creating a coherent narrative, right? That one of the ways we can start to heal and integrate those experiences is to help tell the story of what happened in a way that helps us make sense of those experiences. Just like you described that experience of reading that book where afterward you had this like, oh, I make sense, right? That makes sense because when we're little, the only way that we know how to understand things is to internalize. Right? That's the only that, you know, again, it'd be great if our, if we had the ability to say like, oh, that's not my stuff to take on. Right. right. <laughs> uh, we don't, unfortunately. And so that this idea of helping ourselves, if we're talking about ourselves, our children, if we're talking about our children, helping them to make sense of what happened in such a way that they come to understand that it wasn't their fault. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think even with little, little kiddos, there's ways to do that through 
story. Storytelling is such a profoundly important tool that especially in our Western culture just really is underutilized, but there are ways to tell stories, right? And, and sometimes, you know, we'll do it with like dinosaurs or unicorns or whatever thing your child is into, right? And you tell a story about a um, dragon family, right? And the dragon mommy at nighttime would scream at the dragon baby and he didn't understand. And then right through the story, they get to dragon mommy comes back to say, I realized that, you know, I shouldn't have been yelling at you and dragon baby. Like you, there's just beautiful ways to infuse this idea of creating a coherent narrative through story that really can help rewire even little kiddos who who may not have conscious memory. And that's the other thing, even of all ages, we don't always have conscious memory, but our bodies, right? They're just so encoded in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, creating ways of making sense of what has happened, I think is, is one way and a, a good step toward healing a little bit of that. Well, and that's exactly what they did in some of our family therapy that we did for my son. One of the things we did was he had to take, he had a teddy bear that he picked off a huge wall of teddy bears. They were all different. I knew exactly which one he'd picked too. That's a crazy thing, but he got to pick a teddy bear and then that teddy bear became him as a baby. And so in therapy, they coached him to tell the story of his foster mom and his birth mom and coming to America and all the things that he had gone through, he was supposed to tell the bear. And then they would say, well, this is real hard on him. So you need to give him some love and give him some cuddling. And I sort of feel like that helped him get some of the stuff he didn't get as a baby. So he was neglected by his foster mother. So Mm -hmm. What a beautiful, beautiful way to do that. That's, and you're exactly right. Helping him to make sense of those experiences, the things that he can't consciously name, but that definitely live in his body. Yeah. And I know, I know I've had therapists too that say, now let's talk to little Gina and tell her it's going to be okay. You know, so yeah, I know totally. that you still have to go back to your childhood and take care of some of that stuff. Yeah. And you really can, you know, that sort of whole field of reparenting, right? That is very much, that's exactly what that field is about. It's about figuring out how did what happened to six-year-old Chrissy, how is that still playing out in the way that I'm either parenting or moving through the world? And then what did six-year-old Chrissy need to hear? Right. Right. And then literally telling myself what I needed to hear. And getting to show up for six-year-old me as I am now. One thing that I read and am doing now, and it's a little uncomfortable, is to have a picture of myself when I was little hung up on my wall, just like I have pictures of my own children, Mm -hmm. as a way of honoring and loving on that little version of me. And I remember reading about this and feeling like, oh, that feels... And then I had an invitation to get curious about why did that feel awkward or weird to have a picture of little me on the wall? And it really is this, again, beautiful way to acknowledge her and let that version of me know that she's still loved and adored and important, um, an important part of the family. That's awesome. My mom has a picture of me, my brother and her all at the same exact age. And we we look very similar. It's great. (laughs) 
<laughs> Love that. That's what it reminded me of. So tell us about what you're doing now. You're coaching other parents and how would they find you and what do you do? What does that look like? Yeah. So that's exactly right. I'm coaching parents. My certification that I got is through an organization called JAI, and they have a curriculum that, it, and it's really based very much on um, nonviolent communication. It's based on um, Dr. Mona Delahook's work beyond behaviors, really that, you know, looking underneath and somatics. There's a lot of somatics involved in, in it. So anyways, the there's a curriculum that exists. And so I coach clients really kind of through that curriculum. So it's weekly some video content, some workbook, other resources, and then a one-on-one coaching session. And in that session with me, they can either delve into the content or whatever parenting fire is currently the one in their household and try to problem solve and work through it. So those Mm -hmm. coaching sessions are really tailored to whatever is up for parents at that time. Um, And it's primarily one-on-one, but I'm starting a group. So I'll be interested to see um, how that group piece of it feels. You know, the the benefit is that sense of community. Right. There will be a little bit less of the one-on-one coaching. But um, yeah, so that's that's how I'm working right now. My organization is called Courageous Parents. And so that's the website URL. That's the Instagram handle, um, Courageous Parents. And um, yeah, that's really the the primary ways that you could reach me. That's great. So um, are you, are you afraid of kids like ours? (laughs) I am not. I, you know, no is the answer to that. I um, really love kiddos like that and and, um, have some experience, not my own children, but children that we're really close to in our family that, you know, it's, it's a, a beautiful thing to be able to suspend judgment and get curious Mm -hmm. and, continue to commit to looking under the behavior, under the behavior and to support parents in that because it's exhausting work. It's thankless work. So often it's, it's exponentially harder than what is already hard about parenting. And so just, you know, the opportunity to be supporting parents in that really messy, tricky, um, yeah, it, it, I, I feel really fortunate when I have the opportunity to be working with families who who are really struggling and um, could benefit just from some non-judgmental support, someone to just listen and hold space and brainstorm together. So, yeah. And you used one of my favorite quotes from Ted Lasso, which is be curious, not judgmental. I don't even think it's his quote originally, but I love it so much. Yeah. And uh, that's my yeah. favorite show. <laughs> mm, love it. Yes. So this was great. Thank you so much for all of your experience that you shared. And um, I would love to keep talking to you more, but I'm going to let my listeners go and they can catch you in the show notes. I'll put all of your information, your contact information. It'll also be on the Trauma Drama website. So if they want to try out some one-on-one parenting, I highly recommend Chrissy and uh, she seems to know what she's doing. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much, Gina. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Erase the Chaos podcast. If you need a supportive village at your side as you deal with extreme parenting, please head over to Trauma Drama University and sign up for free. We've got online courses and resources to help you out at www.traumadramauniversity.com. 
check out our campus store to help raise awareness for the impact childhood trauma behaviors have on our society. As a nonprofit, we appreciate any and all contributions which can be made on our website. Please forward this information to any parents you know who are struggling with severe behaviors. We're here to help.